I was called in because two of the people in the senior team were really at each other's throats. And real problem had to do with organizational structure. These were two bright, talented people who were trying to step into a void. Both of them are in there trying to solve a problem for the organization. And in the meanwhile, they start stepping on each other's toes. Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb. And Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. Welcome, Evan. It's so nice to have you here. Good to be here. So, Eben Weitzman, you are a social and organizational psychologist, and you direct the Conflict Resolution Program at UMass Boston's Department of Conflict Resolution, Human Security, and Global Governance. But perhaps more particularly relevant here is that you have worked with wide-ranging groups, human rights, healthcare organizations, labor unions, and government tackling organizational conflict, cross-cultural conflict, and intergroup relations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> but what type of conflicts do you help resolve? Give us some examples. Yeah, so I guess a lot of people who do conflict resolution work do mediation, sort of straight sit down with two or more parties with a specific dispute and help them work it out. And I do some of that, but not very much. More often what I'm doing uh, is getting involved in a situation where there's ongoing, more systemic conflict. It's not just one dispute. It might be one dispute that just never goes away, but more often it's we're fighting about all kinds of things. There's a constant, especially in organizations, where there's a pattern of we have trouble resolving conflict. There's always conflict. It's one thing and then another thing and then another thing. And often it's about getting to some of the root causes that are driving that, causing lots of different things to keep popping up. When I think about social justice organizations and intra-organizational conflicts, I think of, for example, a new executive director coming on board and there's a whole group of staff that have a completely different approach or culture to the way the new executive director sees the direction of the organization. Uh, is that something you've seen or? Yeah, yeah. So one of, the, one of the things I think it characterizes those kinds of organizations is people who are doing what they're doing because of deep passion for it and deep, deep philosophical, ideological, value-driven commitments to what they're doing. So everything is infused with a whole lot of passion. When a new person comes in, often they're coming into a situation where people who have been worked real hard to figure out the way to do things and feel like they have figured it out and like they've tested out all sorts of other things and rejected them and found what works. Um, so there's often resistance to change for those reasons. That's one of the big sort of common things that goes on. Uh, another thing is that often the new executive director coming into an organization very often will be younger than a lot of the other people who are there. Very often as our times change, more often a woman coming into a position that was previously held by a man. Sometimes it's a person of color in an organization that's always been led by white people. And so ageism, sexism, racism, often under the surface and often in an organization that prides itself on being progressive and having all that stuff worked out, 
Um, but none of us ever really get all that stuff completely worked out. And so it often, there are often struggles. So what we're talking about now, which is this uh, new executive director, and what are the sort of typical ways that you work with an organization to resolve the conflict? So typical is a little bit hard to put a finger on because even though I have a whole sort of bucket of different kinds of tools that I can reach for, it's been important to address each organization as unique, each client's situation as different. So sometimes it's direct one-on-one sort of coaching with that ED, helping them think through the situation that they're in, how they want to manage it. Um, It might be very explicitly or specifically conflict coaching, right? Whether that's thinking through the strategy for how to manage a conflict, whether it's helping that person identify areas of personal growth that they want to undertake to get better at dealing with that conflict, whether it's managing a temper and not blowing up, or on the flip side, learning to speak up and not avoid conflicts chronically, figuring out constructive ways to look for solutions that really address underlying needs and don't just try to win. Um, So sometimes it's coaching around specifically dealing with conflict. Sometimes it's more general coaching around how do you want to build a senior leadership team? And this is one of the areas where I've done uh, work repeatedly. How do you want to build your senior leadership team, generally speaking, so that it can really be an effective true team that can really lead the organization, but also how can you set that team up from the beginning of your new leadership um, so that conflict is something that's not feared, avoided, engaged in destructively, but rather is recognized as the source of all growth and change? Uh, How do you set up a team that's willing to have conflict constructively to take advantage of the fact that Hopefully we've got a diverse team and hopefully there's a diversity of perspectives in there um, and that that becomes a source of new thinking. So you started that answer with um, everybody's different, every organization is different. But when you're working with leaders in an organization that you try to depersonalize it, does helping leaders see the systemic sources of the problem in their own organization play a role in what you might do? Or not. That's a really interesting question. I think that I would separate the two parts of what you said, right? The seeing things as more systemic and depersonalizing aren't necessarily the same okay. thing, right? So sometimes, sometimes it can be very helpful to recognize that, for example, you're emotionally triggered and you're not really operating from your more, most resourceful mm-hmm. state, right? And that you need to deal with whatever the emotional wound is or the way that you're responding to things. And that might sound like I'm saying everybody needs to go into therapy. I'm not necessarily saying that. Sometimes you really need to deal with the core thing. Sometimes you just need to learn how to manage it because we all carry around those kinds of wounds. And there are strategies and techniques that can be learned and practiced. Yeah, I worked with an organization where I was called in because two of the people in the senior team were really at each other's throats and had caused each other quite a bit of personal emotional harm along the way. The real problem had to do with organizational structure. These were two bright, smart, talented people who were both trying to step into a void which the organization wasn't equipped to take care of. And so in good faith, really both of them are in there trying to solve a problem for the organization. And in the meanwhile, they start stepping on each other's toes 
and then gets into all sorts of personal fights and name calling and, you know. So then you've got to deal with the personal relationship and how do you heal that, but you've also got to deal with redesigning the organization and rebuilding the senior leadership team and so on. Can you go with that example that you mentioned from the moment that you get that call, maybe it's from the executive director, I assume, and take us through some of the steps. Yeah, so I began with the contact from the top of the organization and the the request for help. We had a couple of conversations on the phone and a sit-down meeting. And then the way we set up the project was that I began by interviewing all the people on the senior team uh, and took that home and digested it for a day or two. And in the course of that, was able to sort of identify more of what the overall problem was. And so then the intervention phase of things, we did a couple of retreats of the senior leadership team to work through how they work together and what their expectations of each other were. I did a couple of one-on-one sessions that were almost like mediations with a couple of different pairs of people who were in trouble with each other, uh, in addition to the one sort of triggering case. Um, And then the team identified this structure issue. And so then we engaged in an organizational restructuring process. There's a, um, a method that I like a lot that's got to do with sort of thinking about uh, organizational redesign criteria, sort of working your way through what would a optimal design look like for us. So using organizational design approach from that sort of really comes out of work by Jay Galbraith, You start with having the team identify criteria for an ideal design. So the right organization design would do such and such for us, would allow us to be an effective organizing, et cetera. So you come up with usually a sentence that sort of sets the direction, sets the criteria, so that whatever design we come up with will need to meet that criterion. And that's really the starting place. And then there's a whole series of steps that you go through. Part of it is researching other organizations and how they're designed and looking at those, doing some homework on it, doing an analysis of your organization's needs, what you think the future looks like, what's your current strategic plan, where you're trying to get to in five or 10 years. And then you go through a design process to get there. And part of what that does is it lifts people very much out of the day-to-day turf struggles, or it can help to. If people are committed to hanging on to turf, they will. But if they're willing to move forward, it helps us to turn away from the interpersonal fight, focus on a desirable future, and then agree together in a rational kind of a way on what would be the ideal way to structure ourselves. But this is different than a a strategic plan itself. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the Galbraith's method supposes that you have a strategic plan, right? And so that you bring that into the process. You look at the strategic plan and say, in order to get there, how do we need to be structured? Um, Most organizations are flopping along without a really clear strategic plan that they're really following and executing on. And I should say that that becomes another piece of conflict resolution work often in organizations when you're talking about deep systemic conflict is getting involved in strategic planning because often struggles within an organization are about we don't necessarily all have the same really clear vision of where we're going. Um, So it's been another this this particular project was about organizational uh, redesign. Often it's been people are having so much trouble with each other because they've got really different conceptions of what they're trying to achieve 
And in a social change organization, that's that's pretty fundamental, yeah. right? Um, and so then often it's going through a process that can get people really aligned around where do we want to be in five or 10 years? What do we want to have accomplished? Who do we want to be working here? What do we want it to look like? What do we want it to feel like to be working here? That can often generate a lot of energy and also really help with the alignment question. So early on, you mentioned that there may be other um, factors such as racism or perceptions of women. And if you focus on the specific conflict and go through the realignment process or a strategic planning, will that be sufficient to address this other issue? So especially when we're talking about progressive social change organizations, I think there's an expectation that, you know, good progressives have done the internal work, aren't walking around treating each other badly, whether it's around dimensions of difference or just in general. Uh, and yet there's all sorts of stuff that happens. Um, and I think that can be a real barrier and a real challenge because the level of reactivity that people have to being called out on stuff can be even higher, right? What do you mean? Whether it's, what do you mean calling me the boss, right? When a, when a union president's staff wants to organize into a staff union and calls the boss a boss, and does a march on the boss and things like that. It's like, I've sacrificed my entire life to fighting for workers. What do you mean organize, right? So, so that's sort of a pervasive thing. And then when there are people who genuinely feel they've spent their lives fighting for the rights of women for the rights of people of color, for you know people who are LGBTQ, that they when they get called out uh, on stuff that they ha still haven't got right, um, there can there's an extra level of wound I think, or maybe it's just a different kind of wound. I you know I think everybody gets hurt when they get called out on that stuff, but there's something there's something a little bit different there, and that can make it that can be an extra barrier, but it also can be an extra opportunity. Right, because if people who are really committed to those kinds of changes can be called in rather than called out, um, to use a phrase that's become popular but people aren't real good at, right? How do you actually invite somebody into a conversation about something so difficult? Then often you can have real conversations, right? So there are plenty of organizations, progressive social change organizations that have had been going through very significant Me Too moment stuff right, with all sorts of misconduct in the workplace around sex and gender. And so I guess um, there's a couple of different levels. One is uh, dealing with the specific event, the specific trauma, creating the space for that specific healing. The other is that how do you do the more general growth in the organization, right? How do you, what kinds of things can you do to deepen interpersonal awareness, develop interpersonal skill, so I've done a lot of work with colleagues in which we have taken people through different sorts of exercises around understanding identity, understanding the you know multiplicity of identities that we carry around, dealing with what intersectionality is actually about that we carry and how those interact, um, dealing with developing skills for having conversations across those differences, exchanging experiences of being on different sides of a big power line you know, men and women talking with each other about what it's, how that works in terms of power and what their experiences have been in their lives. Black people and white people talking to each other across that line. Um, 
And so that can be, and even in what I just said, there's all sorts of tricky stuff that gets navigated because I just spoke in terms of a couple of sort of uh, binaries, right? right? Mm -hmm. And people aren't thinking that way so much mm -hmm. anymore. And, and so those conversations come up and not everybody's used to having those conversations in more complicated ways. So there's a whole sort of set of curricula that, that people have developed and some of it's good and some of it's not as good, but some of it can be really powerful and really allow people to have serious conversations. So that starts to equip an organization to deal with stuff as it comes up, right? And you start to give people tools. Someone named Delight Frost uh, had developed a technique called tracking, um, which is a way to observe what's going on around you. What do you see? What do you hear? To be able to identify patterns in that behavior or in the things that you're seeing. Um, and then to be able to name that in a way without judgment, right? So can I identify that, huh, there's something going on in terms of who's been talking in the room and who's not? Oh, you know what? As I look around the room and I start to pay attention to patterns, I notice that it's, for example, the people who I think, I'm not sure, but it seems to me that we've been in here for 45 minutes and that almost all the talking has been done by people who are native speakers of English. I don't know if I'm right about that, but that's what I think I'm seeing. I didn't, in doing that, I'm not making a judgment about the values or inherent goodness of anybody in the room. I don't even know the actual sources of the behavior. Um, but put it out there and in an organization that's ready to have those kinds of conversations, that doesn't have to be a getting somebody in trouble. Tracking sometimes is something that some people are afraid is going to be used as a gotcha. But when introduced into an organization that is serious about addressing internal change and people are willing to make a commitment to having those conversations, that can be really powerful. This is one example of a tool um, that can help to open up conversations. If an organization was interested in this, would they say, okay, at our staff meetings from now on, we will incorporate into our collective agreements that we will be encouraging tracking. And so at a certain point in a meeting, people comment, or how, how is it actually? In uh, organizations that are serious about, we've got to change what's going on here. Women are not happy here. People of color are not happy here. People are leaving uh, the organization. And there's got to be top leadership support for that kind of change. And then maybe part of a series of retreats is spending some time on learning how to do that. And then maybe the organization says, yeah, we want to incorporate this into what we do. That's a way to use it that can be that can really be effective. There are other tools that might flow from from trying to resolve that yeah. problem. There are also very concrete things that an organization can do. Adopting policies right, about what kind of behavior is acceptable and what's not. Uh, creating a position like an ombudsman, someone to whom anyone can go for a confidential conversation. Here's a problem I'm having with somebody else, whether it's my boss is harassing me or I think the person in the, or the next person in the next desk is harassing me or whatever it is, I've got a problem. I can go confidentially to an ombudsman who can help me f understand the rules, understand the law, help me figure out what I want to do. So establishing a, pl a place where you can go is a piece. Coming up with clear and specific goals and policies about how we're going to make the organization more inclusive. So creating and assigning um, diverse project teams, you know, mixing things up, paying attention to 
developmental opportunities in a really systemic way for everybody in the organization. So you get out of the trap of the person who's in a position of power, who's in from a set of high power demographic groups, tends to just reach out to the people who look like typically him and develop them. You get systemic about it and you make sure everybody's getting their development opportunities. And then you've got what happens when trust has really been violated, when somebody in a high position of power has been abusive and that's got wounds all through the organization. Then you're talking about creating spaces in which people can have the conversations that they need to have about what's gone on and how do you facilitate that in a constructive, effective way. Can you talk about skills that an organization potentially could develop on its own internally and when an organization would need to bring someone like you in? Yeah. Even if they're bringing in somebody from the outside, the goal really should be to build those skills internally so that that outside help isn't needed anymore. Yeah. Right? So one of the key things is, do the people in the organization have skills to manage conflict constructively? You know, a lot of people see the role of a manager uh, or a leader as being largely conflict resolution. The question is, how do you do that? Do you do that in ways that build up relationships and organizational strength, or do you do that in ways that are destructive, right? So there are basic skills that everybody should have. I, I think it, it starts with the notion that, as I said earlier, conflict's not a bad thing to be avoided, right? It's, it's necessary for all growth and change. And the question is, how do you do it constructively? Uh, and I think that starts with listening, okay. right? That is the key. And listening, inquiring to understand. Some of the language in the conflict resolution field people use a lot is talking about getting from positions to underlying interests. The position is the demand that I put out, right? I want that apple. You know, but if you can't give me that apple, then we're just stuck. If we can get to the underlying interest, which is I'm hungry, then it may be that you got something else you can offer me, yeah. a sandwich or something. I mean, the sort of classic example that the field loves to use over and over again until yeah. everybody gets sick of it is that two kids fighting over an orange, right? And so adult steps in and does what? Cuts the orange in half. Right. Turns out one kid wants to eat the fruit. The other one wants the peel to make marmalade. Every, each kid could have had everything they want, but it takes a lot of listening when the kids are yelling and screaming um, to find out what they actually want out of this orange. That sounds really simplistic. People tend to dismiss that as, well, real world problems aren't oranges, but in fact, most of the time they are. Um, and there's usually ways, once you get to underlying interests, that you can fashion new ways forward. And they may not always be perfect. They may not always be one kid gets to eat all the fruit and the other one gets to make marmalade. But if we get to what people really care about, there are often ways to be more creative about figuring out what we can do and what's going to be most effective for the organization. So if you, if you were doing an assessment of an organization, what kinds of capacities besides the example that you gave would you be looking for an organization to have? Specifically around conflict. Yeah, specifically around conflict. Yeah. So when I go into an organization, I tend to think about things in a few different buckets. So there's the sort of structural thing. So I gave the example at the beginning of the organization that was experiencing so much conflict because of the way they were structured, right? People were at odds with each other, right? Or reporting lines don't match up. Another thing is, do we have the processes in place? Do we have, for example, an ombudsman? Does the organization have a way of dealing with conflict? And then the people, 
right? So structure, process, and people. Do the people have the temperament? Do we have the right decision-making processes in place, right? Whether we're doing things by fiat, whether we're doing things by vote, whether we're doing things by consensus building, whether we've got, you know, coalitions that drive things through. Um, do we have the right decision-making processes for specific decisions is often a big one. A lot of the time conflict comes in as no decision is ever a decision, right? Or decisions don't stick. That's because you didn't really get agreement um, and so on. And so people, something gets agreed to in the room and then people are un busy undermining it later. Mm. So I would say, do you have the right decision-making processes? Do we have a process that includes the people who need to be included to make the big picture decisions about where we're going that really get people aligned? And then at the interpersonal skills level, first key one is the listening tools. Can I really inquire to understand? Can I really get to knowing what you really care about? Am I able then, that's step one. Step two is, can I then repackage what we're dealing with so that it's no longer a me versus you struggle, but instead a mutual problem to be solved collaboratively, right? Yeah. So if I really know what you care about, and I've been able to express to you, after listening to you, been able to express to you what I really care about, right? Can I then say, all right, and it's often just asking this question, so what can we do so that your needs, which are A, B, and C, and my needs, which are X, Y, and Z, can all be met? And then we shift around, and now instead of fighting for how much of what I'm looking for I can get, we're working together creatively. Great, good. That's terrific. You actually sent me a... Uh the perfect article for a class I'm teaching, but also for this podcast. Uh, it was called The Cowboy Mentality, Organizers and Occupational Commitment in the New Labor Movement, which in a nutshell was about, in addition to labor organizing, social justice orga organizations, this um, desire to have everybody functioning at their more than their maximum capacity. Yeah. Uh, and in, in many cases, people working themselves to the bone. You might have the head of an organization who says, hey, look, I've given up my entire life for this organization. If you're going to really be a player, then you know you need to be as dedicated as I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering uh, if that is something that uh, you've ever come across. Yeah, boy. I mean, I think what you're talking about sort of underlies everything that we've been talking about today. Right. And it's um, one of the big pieces of it is sort of a martyr syndrome. Yep. Right. Most people who are doing the kind of work could probably be making more money in the private sector. Mm -hmm. Right. You're doing this kind of work because you care about it um, and because you are passionate about it and you're driven to it. Ninety, 90 percent of the time, that's the case. People work incredibly hard. They make huge sacrifices. They give up crucial years of Kids growing up, if they have them, many people feel they can't afford to have kids, particularly quite a number of women who feel like it's not an option um, because of the demands of the work. And it's destructive on so many levels. I mean, I see so many people in those kinds of organizations who are pushing themselves to the point where it's actually a detriment to the organization, right? When you wear yourself down to the point where you diminish your own capacity, Right. And you may be spending 120 hours at work uh, every week, but you may be accomplishing less and less of quality than if you kept it to a reasonable 60 or something. Right. 
there will be resentment of people who aren't willing to make those sacrifices. I think leaders will often feel perfectly justified in all sorts of behavior towards the people that they are leading or managing uh, on the staff of the organization or even volunteers. I mean, a lot of progressive change organizations have trouble keeping volunteers because the organizers who are organizing them are so harsh, mm. right? Because, hey, we're, I'm not doing this for me. This is not about my personal profit. We're doing this to save those people. Mm -hmm. We're doing this for the workers. We're doing this for the immigrants. I can feel very righteous because I'm doing something genuinely good in the world and I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I may feel justified in expecting that other people sacrifice. And I may feel justified in not really paying attention to the feelings or the experience of the people that I'm asking to go do this work because it's for some higher cause. Right. So that can lead to a lot of the really bad behavior that happens inside those social change organizations. And that burns out all sorts of people. And there are people who, I think progressive movements lose a lot of really talented younger people yeah. who look and see what, you know, their people who are their role models have done to their lives and say, geez, I really care about this, but I can't do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I got some, I mean, I have had people say to me, I'm so committed to this, the, executive director of this organization I have so much admiration for and what she does what she's done over the course of her career is amazing and she sacrificed so much and I you know but I've got this person I want to marry mm -hmm. and literally this is a conversation I had mm -hmm. I got this person I want to marry and I can't do that and do this, and I can't complain about what's being expected of me because of what the boss has yeah. sacrificed in her own life. So how can I complain? So my only choice is to leave. Mm -hmm. And I've had that conversation many times over with people. So you, you, you lose people because of that thing. And then the other part of the cowboy mentality thing, I think, is um, we're used to driving so hard and we're used to combat mm -hmm. with outside foes. And that's right. sort of, you know, one of the key skills for people going into the labor movement, lots of other social change work is you got to, you know, you got to be good at fighting and you probably got to enjoy it. And so now what happens when you see trouble coming with somebody inside the organization? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you see this? Do you see a way to deal with this constructively or do you just see this as, oh, we got a fight coming and either, OK, I'm going to, you know, get ready to fight or else I'm going to just avoid it because I don't want to tear the organization apart. And both of those things are bad. Okay, so you 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 nailed the problem, and uh, and now you're brought into this organization that has precisely that uh, mm. approach, and of course, as as we said, the leadership is right enmeshed in that approach, and yet they brought you in for some mm. other thing that they are not realizing is sort of a whole systemic problem. And what do you do? A lot of the time, it's just making the observation to them that I just made to you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? you guys are really good at fighting and what happens when you see trouble coming here and people are like oh you know and some people in the room say just avoid it because i don't want to tear this place apart and other people are like well we tend to go mix it up and so make that observation and there's usually a lot of nodding heads around and i'll say all but on the other hand particularly like in a labor union where you've got people who are skilled organizers on the other hand you are also very skilled at going into a meeting of members 
who are really divided over some important issue, maybe it's whether or not to call a strike or just what to ask for at the bargaining table or whatever else, whether to support a grievance, you know, going to going to arbitration, going to trial. And you're used to going into that room and bringing those people together. So you've actually got those harmonizing skills as well. And I usually don't have to say the next sentence, which is, so can you use that skill set here instead? And people just immediately go, oh yeah, we know how to do this, you know. So I just want to go back to the systemic martyr syndrome within an organization. Have you had the experience where you've been able to take an organization through changing that? Um, Certainly in my coaching practice, I've worked with a lot of individual leaders who were doing that to themselves um, and who were able to recognize it. And then so we work on, you know, being able to convince themselves that self-care is a legitimate thing to pay attention to and make time for um, and really think about what that might mean, whether it's turning off the phones after dinner, whether it's not working all weekend, whether it's starting to get exercise, but actually making the time for a life. I've had a number of clients, especially younger leaders who are in their later 20s or into their earlier mid-30s who are really starting to make progress professionally, but they're also really starting to wear down. Who's, who take up a real serious, okay, I've got to nurture my whole self, not just get better skills at the job. And that's often led to big advances. It's like a different person showing up, right? Somebody who's not grumpy and reactive and defensive, but enthusiastic and energized and having better ideas and taking initiative on things. And for an organization to make that change, it involves the president, executive director, and then the senior leadership team deciding, we got to get serious about this. And then culture change in an organization is a really hard thing to do. Chris Argerus would talk about the difference between espoused values and values in action, right? So the espoused values are the ones that might be on the poster on the wall, and the values in action are how do we actually see people behaving. I'm interested in what type of skills an organization can develop on its own and what type of skills do they need from a person like yourself? One of them is when conflict keeps coming back. Hmm. We thought we resolved that issue and it keeps coming up again and again and we can't figure out why. I think another one is when you personally are triggered, when something is hitting you in such a way that you recognize that you are not acting from your most resourceful state, you know you're not going to be able to be the one to do this well. Can someone other than the leadership of the organization play a role in pointing out some Mm -hmm. of the things that are going wrong or not working? How can you effectively point out and encourage the uh, leaders of the organization to, to take account of what's going on? That's a big question because it depends a whole lot on who that person at the top that needs to be convinced is uh, and what the nature of their resistance is, you think, right? Are they just totally reactive and closed and blind to their own behavior? Are they just, you know, they're really a person who you think has a good heart and cares about this stuff, but they just believe that they're totally wedded to the self-sacrifice for the people we're fighting for, notion or what? So what's the nature of convincing them that needs to happen? Um, Unfortunately, we've seen some cases where it has taken 
you know, some big public mess mm -hmm. yeah. to get through to people. Um, I think sometimes it's about figuring out who's the right coalition in the organization who could go sit down and have a conversation with that person about the need to address this stuff, yeah. right? Who is there a, a group of three or four of us that are trusted, uh, that are diverse enough to speak for different constituencies or stakeholder groups within the organization? Who could make a difference? Is there just a trusted person who could be gotten to, you know, go? And then the other, so, so there's all those. The other thing, there was a guy named Richie Orange who was one of the early diversity consultants who who did a, a lot of uh, a lot of really interesting work. Um, he's gone now, unfortunately. But I, I remember him talking about an experience he had in a really large organization. And Richie was black, and there were a number of uh, older black women who were secretaries in this organization who started coming to him and talking to him about some of the problems around race and gender and how they were being treated in the organization. Um, but that, you know, the management in this organization at that point in time was all white and almost all men, and they didn't feel like there was any interest in... in and so what, what Richie did was he started... He, he called it guerrilla consulting. He just started working with them on conversations about what they were experiencing and what was going on and how they wanted to deal with it. Um, and then there were some younger white men managers that um, some of these women were working for as secretaries who were more progressive and open-minded and they started to get wind of what was happening and be interested in it and they started to get involved and and eventually the sort of awareness grew and and will grew and people started saying oh what's going on over there oh that unit over there is having some really interesting conversations and people are a lot happier over there and people are talking about some kinds of changes that sound like they might be important and so you start small and where people are have a will and you sort of build momentum that way so that guerrilla consulting notion of just start doing the work. If you can't get influence at the top, start doing the work. Start having the conversations. If what's going on is good, other people are going to become curious and want to get involved. And so that's been another approach. I think this is an extraordinarily helpful and fascinating conversation. Oh, great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media and Boston Free Radio.